the church actually has uh, three ranks and each rank has many degrees so the three ranks which are in the Bible the deacon the priest or the presbyter and the bishop so these are the three ranks deacon uh, priest and uh, bishop deacons what are the ranks of the deacon the first uh, degrees how many degrees in the deacon the first degree we call chapter chapter those who are leading the chanting like the choir of the church leading the chants uh, the chanting of the church but chanting in the orthodox church is not a choir and then all of us we listen to the choir no the choir here or the chanters lead the people and the people participate in the chanting so all of us actually participate in the chanting the second rank is the reader reader those during the liturgy they read from the bible from the scripture the gospel the psalm the Pauline letter catholic letter book of acts prophecies so these are the readers third rank third degree sorry is called the subdeacon and as i told you today we ordained four subdeacons subdeacon is the assistant of the deacon who help the full deacon in preparing the altar who help actually uh, like uh, the scout uh, and keep the order in the church uh, like the ushers so lead the people to their seats uh, make sure uh, the church is ready for the congregation to be able to pray and participate these are the subdeacons the fourth degree is the full deacon the full deacon is the one who actually serves with the priest in the altar and he uh, he says all the responses in the altar and also the, the full deacon is responsible for the with Abuna, with the priest, visiting the sick people, uh, asking for the needy, help the poor, and if he finds anybody in need, he, he will tell the priest about this person, so the church can assist him, whether financially or emotionally or psychologically or spiritually. So he, he, one of his responsibility is to uh, serve uh, visit the sick, ask about people in prison, uh, help the poor and the needy, etc. Then the fifth degree is the archdeacon, the head deacon. The archdeacon is like the one who coordinates all the deacons from the chapter. So he will connect the schedule, who will be chanting this day, who will serve in the altar, how the subdeacons will do their service, etc. So, but the first rank is the deacon, and in the deacon actually we have five degrees. The uh, first one, chapter, then reader, then subdeacon, deacon, archdeacon. The second rank we call it priest or presbyter. Presbyter means intercessor because the main function of the priest is to pray on behalf of his people to intercede on behalf of the, of the people, presbyter, intercessor. 
So there are two degrees uh, or two ranks under the priest. Priest and hegumen. Hegumen like coordinator. So for example, in the city of Phoenix, we can have five priests. And then there is one hegumen who actually organize all the, the ministry and service among all, all the priests. Uh, this actually how uh, it, it should work. So the hegumen, like the coordinator of the ministry of all uh, the priests. Uh, that's why the, sometimes he translated like governor. Governor means he uh, coordinate, manage, arrange the service among all the priests. Then the third rank is the bishop. Bishop, uh, there is bishop of the capital city, there is bishop of like a state or more than a state, and there bishop of small cities. So the bishop of the capital, we call him Pope. Pope means father. Uh, so he's the father. In the Orthodox theology, we call him the first among equals. And this is a big difference between the hierarchy in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church. In the Catholic Church, the Pope is the head of the Church. But in the Orthodox Church, the Pope is not the head of the Church. The head of the Church is Christ. But the Pope, we call him the first among equals. So all the bishops are equal with the Pope, but he is the first among them. Because he is the bishop of the capital city. Uh, then, the bishop of the big province or state, we, we call him metropolitan, from the word metroplex. So uh, he is the bishop of the big city, or big, big state, or big province. Then, uh, the bishop of small cities, uh, bishop, bishop in Greek, episcopus. Epi means above. For example, we call this epiderm. Derm, you know, dermatology is of the skin. Epiderm is a layer above the skin. That's epiderm. So epi from above. Scope means vision. Like we say telescope, microscope. So episcopus, the one who is seeing from above. That's the bishop. The one who see all the services in the churches, the priests, the deacons, the lay people, and he coordinate all the uh, service of uh, the people, whether lay people, bishops, uh, priests, or uh, deacons. So in the bishop, there are three uh, degrees, bishop, metropolitan, and pope. Pope is the bishop of the capital city. Metropolitan is the bishop of the province or state, and the bishops are the bishop of small city. There's only one pope, right? There's only one pope. One pope. One pope. Yes. You can have many, but one for, for a bigger sense. But you can have more than the Holy Synod, you can have more than uh, one, one metropolitan. Yes, yes, but not in the same diocese. Okay. 
not at the same basis. The highest authority in the church is not the Pope like the Catholic Church. Okay. The highest authority in the church is the Holy Synod. Holy Synod is all the bishops, metropolitan and the Pope together. That is the Holy Synod. And each one, each bishop or uh, metropolitan or even the Pope are accountable to the Holy Synod. So that is the highest authority in the church. And the last point I'd like to explain uh, the, the, the three ranks like triangle. Uh, so we have the bishop, the deacon, and the priest. The priest in charge of the spiritual affairs of the church and the pastoral affairs of the church. The deacon in charge of the administrative affairs of the church. If you read Acts chapter 6, when problem happened about some windows and they are uh, neglected uh, in, in the distribution and nobody actually gave them what uh, was distributed to the rest. So the apostles thought uh, to appoint deacons and they said we cannot leave the word of God and serve the tables. So the deacons in charge of administrative affairs and the priests in charge of the pastoral and spiritual affairs. Then both of them report to the bishop. That, that is the triangle. We have the deacon, the priest, and both of them uh, uh, report to the bishop. Any other questions? Uh, until Nicaea, the Council, the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea, which was held in 325, they used to pick the bishops from married or unmarried people. Uh, as St. Paul said to his letter to Timothy, uh, the bishop can be uh, a husband of one wife. So at that time, it's okay if, if, you, if a person is married only once in his life, he can be a bishop. But after the Council of Nicaea, uh, there was discussion because many people start to live separate life. So many people uh, in this council recommended that the bishops will be chosen from celibate or monks, monk people who dedicated their life uh, uh, to, to, for God, and they take three vows, vow, vow of uh, celibacy, vow of poverty, and vow of obedience. And so they decided to choose the bishops from celibate people or monks. But the priests can be chosen from among married people as well as the deacons. All the churches followed this regulation except one church, the Church of Rome, the Catholic Church. That's why until then, they choose all the clergy, whether priests or bishops, from celibate people. I know recently they become a little bit lenient about it, but the rule in the Catholic Church to choose all the clergy from celibate uh, people, but not the Orthodox Church. So, 
First, let me start from the deacons. How we ordain uh, deacons, uh, or how they are selected. There are some requirements. For, for example, if you're going to be a chapter, there are requirements. If you're going to be a leader, there are requirements, and so on. Because if how can we ordain the chapter and we don't know the hymns of the church? So we need, we need to know the hymns of the church. How can you participate in choir and you don't know the songs that chant by the choir? And we do them for them test, and there is each limit. For example, the chanter should be six years and up. Readers 16 and up. It's not deacon 21. So there is each limit for each rank. So the priest in the church actually uh, see the people in his congregation who meet this requirement, he tests them, and then uh, also, he, as a priest of the church, he sees their spirituality, if they are godly, pious people, spiritually uh, mature, then he will recommend them to the bishop, and the bishop uh, ordains the deacons based on the recommendation of the priest, uh, those who met the requirement. For example, Abuna uh, told me there are four person here meet the requirement of the sub-deacons uh, and, and they were tested and Abuna testified they are spiritually mature so today actually we ordained this for person as sub-deacons. For the priest actually when there is a need for a priest so there is a nomination. Whether the nomination come from the bishop or the nomination come from the congregation or come from other priests so we nominate a candidate. And then actually, we send this candidate to the congregation in order to get to know him for uh, at least two months. So he, he will communicate with the people, visit the people, uh, give some sermons. So the people interact with him and see whether they are comfortable with him or not. After this, actually, we do voting. And we say in the voting, if you are going to say no, you need to tell us why no. Because maybe somebody will take the majority of the votes, but one no actually uh, can, can cancel the ordination. For example, if, uh, if he's theologically not sound, he has wrong teaching, wrong uh, doctrine, uh, so we cannot ordain a priest who actually theologically is not sound. And to ordain a priest, there are six groups of, of people they have to approve this ordination. Six groups. Of course, the priest himself, he, the candidate should accept the, the ordination or the calling. Then his wife and his children, because if his wife and children do not agree or do not approve, uh, they cannot help him and support him in his uh, ministry. Number three, the congregation, as I told you, we do vote. So the congregation also should approve the ordination. Number four, the priests in the area, because he will serve with them. For example, if the priest here in Phoenix said, no, we don't approve this, and they have their own reason, uh, how, how can they serve together in harmony and unity if if they don't approve his ordination. Uh, number five, his father of confession, his spiritual father. 
because he will testify for his spiritual maturity. Yes, this person uh, is spiritually mature and can be at least. And at the end, the bishop or the bishops, in the in case of various bishops, they have to approve the ordination. So if we have these six groups approve the ordination, the person himself, his family, his congregation, the priests, the spiritual father or father of confession, and the bishops, then we know that this ordination from God, the Holy Spirit spoke in the heart of these people, and then we move on with the ordination. That's about the priests. When we come to the bishops, bishop, their ordination is different from the, the, the pope. I will explain. The, the bishop, either his holiness will nominate a monk, or the people can nominate to his holiness a monk, uh, to be a bishop. And then, uh, yeah, most of the time, he serves among the congregation for some time, so the people uh, get acquainted with him, and uh, they say yes, you are comfortable or not. And at the end, if they are comfortable with his ordination, they write like acclamation to his holiness the Pope and the Holy Synod. We want this person to be ordained bishop over our diocese. Then the Pope actually sent all the names of these people to the bishops to get their approval also. And if the bishops, if the Holy Synod approved the ordination, then the ordination will move on. So in the same way in the ordination of, of a bishop, the, the, the monk himself should accept, the congregation should accept, the priest of the license should accept, the holy saint should accept, spiritual father should accept, uh, and also his own is a pope. So the, the same six groups it, it, it should, of course there is no family here, but uh, the, the holy saint here replace. So the, the candidate or the monk himself, the congregation, the priests, the Holy Synod, the, uh, the spiritual father, and his holiness, the Pope, all this should actually approve the ordination. Regarding the Pope, it is a long process. When actually uh, the Pope departs, then uh, they choose the senior uh, metropolitan to be like the acting pope during this time. So he will act like the pope uh, during the vacancy of the, of the throne of his own. And then actually, there is uh, a committee. This committee composed of people from the Holy Senate, I think nine persons, and nine persons from the lay people. So the total will be 18. This committee is called the Committee of Nomination. So any group can nominate to this committee. So we can nominate this monk to, or, uh, or general bishop to this committee. And this committee get all the nomination during, for example, Pope Tawadros, after the departure of, of Pope Shenouda. Uh, I think there was about 18 names. So they filter these 18 names, or these names, whatever, 18, 20, or whatever, until 
they choose the highest five among this group. So during the time of Pope Tawadros, they chose five from the 18, and then they called for a voting among all the Copts in the whole world. And they picked the highest three. So they picked three from the five. And then they pray uh, a divine liturgy, and they put the name of the three persons on the altar. And at the end of the divine liturgy, they bring a little child, and then they close his eyes and put the three names like in, in a bowl of glass or something like this. Then he will pick one name. And this name uh, will be the Pope. Uh, so uh, during Pope Tawadros, uh, this child picked the name of uh, his home is Pope Tawadros, and after this, they, they decide on a day of uh, ordination or enthronement. So that is the process of how the Pope is uh, nominated. Uh, any other questions? How does the church feel about a second marriage? Second marriage? Actually, the church uh, is not against the second marriage. Uh, for example, second marriage happened in two cases of if the spouse departed or if there is a divorce. That is when the second marriage will happen. So if the spouse departed, St. Paul actually, in his letter to Timothy, he spoke about young widows, young female widows. And, and he said, encouraged them to get married. Uh, he said, uh, younger widows, I encourage them to get married because if, if they don't have family and children and and they will be idle. And this can tend to them with like gossip to become wanderers from house to house. So he encouraged them to marriage, uh, St. Paul in his letter to Timothy. Uh, that's for the widows. For the divorce, uh, according to the teaching of the scripture, there is no divorce except for adultery. As the Lord Jesus Christ said, if anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, he is considered adulterous. Uh, that's why the church does not acknowledge any civil divorce. So maybe a couple can go and, and file for civil divorce and come to the church, but the church does not acknowledge civil divorce because there is no adultery. Uh, but if there is adultery, then the innocent person who did not commit adultery, this can uh, get a permit for remarriage and then the church bless the second marriage. Uh, but if the divorce, for any other reason, other than adultery or sexual immorality, as St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I instruct spouses not to leave their spouses. If they left, either to remain unmarried or to reconcile. So St. Paul actually 
lifts them for gives them two options either to remain unmarried or to reconcile. But that is a general uh, rule. But of course, every rule is different, every case is different. So the church uh, has what we call clerical counsel, counsel from clergy, to study every case and to see who actually, according to the of scripture, who should get permit for remarriage or not. But in general, the church not against second marriage. If there is a biblical reason for the second marriage, the church is not against my brother and sister-in-law, and they've been baptized many years ago, and why the name change? Somebody, why? Sometimes in baptism, we give like a Christian name, uh, so this saint will be like my intercessor, and I make like uh, a bond, special bond with these saints, so uh, this saint will pray for me, and uh, I, I ask the intercession, so it will be like a friendship. And the idea of changing the name is biblical. Like uh, Simon Peter, uh, when he met the Lord, the Lord told him, your name will be Peter. He changed his name from Simon to Peter. So the name also gives the idea it's a new life, a new beginning. So now I start even with a new name. So even in, in the ordination of a priest, or a bishop would change the name, even if he has Christian name. Uh, when his name was Mina, before his ordination. Uh, and now, actually, uh, Mina is, is a Christian name. Uh, Mina, the, the saint and the uh, wonder worker. But when he was ordained as a priest, his name changed from Mina to Arsene. Uh, to indicate it's a new beginning, a new page in his life, as now he said in other priests. That's the name of the name. God changed also in the Old Testament the name of Abraham from Abraham to Abraham. He changed the name of Jacob from Jacob to Israel. Then so he changed the name of Sarai from Sarai to Sarah. So, so this actually has biblical foundation to indicate a new beginning uh, in the life of this person. And that's male and female both? Yes, Sarai is a female. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So okay. it, it applies for male and female. In the, in the Old Testament, Sarai, the wife of Abraham, female. And that changed his name from Sarai to Sarah. So this would change the name. When does the Coptic Church believe the soul enters a body? There are many verses in the scripture that means or, or indicate that God actually, the person, is considered a whole person from the moment of conception. Yeah. You know, for example, uh, Saint Paul said, "God, who separated, who consecrated me from the womb of my mother." John the Baptist, actually, uh, from the womb in his uh, mother, when Saint Mary visited uh, Elizabeth. He recognizes the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Elizabeth said to Mary, when I heard your, the voice of your greeting in my ear, the baby leaped in my womb out of joy. 
So this means these children, these babies, or these embryos are complete human beings. So actually, abortion is a sin of murder. When actually we allow abortion as if we allow killing innocent children. So the, the, the church is totally against abortion. Because as I told you, abortion is the sin of killing uh, innocent children. Yeah. And the women wear the legs on. The veil, yes. Or scarf, yeah. Okay, it's biblical teaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me first explain it to you. And after I explain it, I read the, the verse from the scripture, and it, now it will make sense. So I'm going to start this argument by saying the head of the woman is the man. And the head of the man is Christ. And the head of Christ is God the Father. So let me start by the head of Christ is God the Father. Of course, we believe that Christ and the Father are the same, it's equal. So the, the Son is not uh, inferior to the Father. So the word head here, there is no superiority in it. But it means this came from that. We know that the Son is begotten from the Father, not the opposite. The Father did not come from the Son, but the Son came from the Father. So when St. Paul said, head of the Son and the Father, he meant that the Son came from the Father. Then he said, the head of the man is the Son. Because God the Father created the man by the Son. Then he said, the head of the woman is the, the, the man. Not because the man is superior, but because the woman was taken from the side of Adam. So that is the first part we need to understand. The head of the woman is the man, the head of the man is the son, the head of the son is the father. That's what St. Paul said at the first. So when we cover the head of the man, we are covering Christ because the head of the man is Christ. When we cover the head of the woman, we are covering the man, the humanity. So in the presence of God, we should not actually reveal the glory of humanity, but we should reveal the glory of God. That's why men should uncover their head, which indicate the glory of God is revealed to everybody, and women cover their heads as a sign covering the glory of humanity in the presence of God. Uh, and also, uh, you, you may ask, but why we have this uh, as priests and clergy? Is it, isn't it a cover of head? No, that's not a head covering. This is a crown of the priesthood, as we read in the Old Testament, God gave Aaron uh, this turban in the Old Testament, and it's written holy to the Lord. And also in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, we read uh, that uh, the 24 presbyters had 24 crowns on their heads. That's why it's not just uh, like a cover, but it has to be uh, raised like this to indicate uh, like a crown 
above the head of the clergy. The first screen is chapter 7. Let me start from verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, because man was created by Christ. Head of the woman is the man, because the woman was taken from the man. Head of Christ is God. Again, head of Christ is God doesn't mean Christ is inferior to God, but because the Son is begotten from the Father and not the opposite. So I don't, I don't want anybody to interpret this as if we are saying woman is inferior to the man. Because if, if this means woman is inferior to man, then Christ is inferior to God, and this is absolutely wrong. Then he said, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered dishonor his head, mean uncovering the glory of Christ, and this should not be the case. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonor her head, because as if in the presence of God, she is honoring and glorifying humanity, because the head of the woman is uh, the man. Uh, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaped. Uh, and God gave the, 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 the hair, long hair for the woman, uh, actually to indicate that she should cover her head. So St. Paul said, if it is shameful for a woman to shave her head like men, uh, then actually it is shameful to pray while her head is not covered. Verse 6, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be sure. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man is a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. As I said, the head of man is Christ. But woman is the glory of man because the head of the woman is uh, the man. For man is not from the woman, the man is not taken from the rib of woman, but woman from man. Now, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So, as the angels actually are obedient to the ordinances of God, so women also should be obedient to the ordinances of God. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the law. So verse 11 is very important. Lest anybody interpret this as we are saying women are inferior to men, he said no. Man is not independent of woman nor woman independent of man. How? For as woman came from man, Eve was taken from Adam, also even man comes through woman. All of us, we were born from women. Uh, all of us who came from mothers, women. But all things are from God. Judge among yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So suppose you say, it's not acceptable for a woman to pray while her head is uncovered. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is dishonor to him because uh, he will be covering the glory of God. Uh, because the long hair is like a cover. 
But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone, then verse 16 is very important. If anyone seems to be contentious, so he will self-argument, no, this is right, this is wrong, why you impose this on us, this is not acceptable right now. So if anyone wants to contend about this, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So St. Paul said, that is the ordinances of God, that's how it should work, we should be obedient like the angels, and if you want, want to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So, uh, the covering is a biblical teaching, First Corinthians chapter uh, 11, as we read it together. Any comments or questions? In the early church, actually, each group of people uh, has their place. So the priests have their place, the deacons have their place, women have their place, men have their place, etc. And the point behind this, here in the church, actually, I, I need everybody and my focus is on God only. Because the other argument, uh, some people say, I want to pray with my family. But even in the worship, you know, uh, as the Lord said, if anyone comes after me, uh, he should actually hate his father, mother, wife, children, you know, and, and he cannot be my disciple. So here in the church, I forget everybody, and my focus is on Christ's home. And, and this is actually the tradition from the early church. And why women sit on the right side and men on the left side? Because in the book of Psalms, the queen sat at the right hand of the king. That's why women sit on the right side and men on the left side. And here even we have St. Mary on the right side of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that nowadays also some Orthodox churches uh, want to have the two genders mixed together, but many Protestant churches want to go back to the early tradition of separate seating. And if you Google, just Google separate seating in the church, separate seating in the church, there is a website called bibleviews.com. Bibleviews.com and the article is separate church seating arrangement and this website is a Protestant website it's, it's not an Orthodox D did you find it mm -hmm. you know and actually he the author gives nine reasons why we should keep the tradition of separate seating in the church nine reasons Besides, there are some quotes from St. Augustine and some church fathers. And, and here I wonder, why some of us in the Orthodox Church want actually to uh, run away from the holy tradition of the church, the Protestant churches now want to go back to the old tradition and, and the holy tradition of the church. And here actually, uh, and there are other websites, and here there is a beautiful 
article about why we should keep separate seating in the church. And the funny thing, some families, they insist to sit together in the church. And then we go for the break after the liturgy, the Agape meal. And then we find that the Agape meal, men sitting together and women sitting together. And this actually the social hour in which we should sit together as families. So we switch. And here in the church, why we should actually, everybody will be focusing on Christ, we want to sit together. And in the social hour, we should be sitting together and chanting together, sorry, and chanting together, spending time together. No, we sit in groups, men together, women together, youth together, children together, and so on. So, we reverse things, actually. Sin before baptism? Once you are baptized, those sins are forgiven? Yes. Sorry, I was raised in a Mormon church and don't know much about this kind of thing. Yes. But those sins are forgiven? Yes. And it's a whole new you after baptism? Yes. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. You know, in the book of Acts, when Paul, whose name was Saul, went to Hanania, Ananias to baptize him. So he told him this very important verse. Be baptized and wash your sins. I, I will get to the reference. Be baptized and wash your sins. So we understand from this verse that baptism wash all our sins. Act 22, verse 16. Verse 16. See, so Hananiah is speaking to Paul, verse 16. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So it's very clear that in baptism, all sins are washed. Okay. And all sins are forgiven. So after baptism, it's a new person, new creation, creation in Jesus Christ. Is that forgiven because you knew it was wrong in the first place? Anything actually done before baptism with repentance and baptism it's forgiven. If we go to Acts chapter 2, mm -hmm. Acts chapter 2, because repent, not only baptism, repentance and baptism. After Peter gave his sermon in, in, um, on the day of Pentecost, those people asked St. Peter a very important question. Uh, yes, verse 37. Now they heard this, they were cut to, heart, to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? So the answer here, he did not tell them, just be baptized. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there are two requirements for the remission of sins, repentance and baptism. So in, in case of adult baptism, they have to repent, and with the repentance confession, then they are baptized. Since they are, will be forgiven, then they receive 
the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we call chrismation. But baptism is not only for Allah, as we read in verse 39, for the promise is to you and to your children. So that's why infant baptism is in the church uh, and accepted by the church from the uh, first century. And to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So baptism plus repentance provide for mission of sins, then the person will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and repentance for everybody, infant, children, adult. For adult, it has to be preceded by repentance. Repent and be baptized for the mission of And any sins can be forgiven. Any sin, any sin, there's no exception. And do we baptize, like my husband passed away and he was of this church, do we baptize for those dead or no? No. I know that Mormon baptized for the dead, but no, I, I cannot be, I cannot be baptized on behalf of somebody else, uh, on, on behalf of somebody who departed. Uh, so there is no baptism for for the dead. Uh, there is a verse that we explain to you because maybe somebody will ask you about this verse in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. The Mormon built their dogma baptism for the dead on verse 29. 1 Corinthians, verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Uh, there are two ways to interpret this verse. One way, you know, in the first century, many people who became Christian, they accept to be killed for the name of Christ, like St. Stephen. So, when I see somebody uh, died for Christ, then I say, this person is not out of his mind. If he dies for Christ, then this faith is true, it's sound. So, I will accept Christianity and be baptized. So, the first way to understand this verse, baptized for the dead, means when I see somebody die for Christ, I will accept to be baptized. So, not to be baptized on behalf of the dead. That's the one way. But there's another way to interpret this verse, that people in the first century, their knowledge of theology was very, very limited. And because they believed that baptism is very, very important for salvation, so some people actually, actually went and baptized for the dead and asked to be baptized for on behalf of dead people. This was a wrong practice, not a good, the right practice. But this practice shows how people believe in the importance of Baptism. So St. Paul is saying what? St. Paul here is not confirming that this practice is acceptable. But you want to say, if the dead will not rise, why these people even went and be baptized for the dead? Although this is a wrong practice, not a right practice. So 
St. Paul, by referring to this practice, does not approve it or does not say it is right practice, but he, he wants to actually use this as evidence how people believed in the resurrection of the dead and how people believed in uh, the importance of baptism for salvation. But from the first century until now, uh, none of the church fathers, uh, none of the uh, apostolic churches, either the Orthodox churches or even the Catholic churches, accept baptism for the dead on behalf of the dead. Just the Mormons actually base this doctrine on this verse. Okay. okay, so let's pray. Finally, O Lord, hear us through the intercession of St. Mary, Mother of God, Archangel Michael, and all the saints have pleased since the beginning. Hear us, O Lord, and we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven,